When we walked into Edgar Keret's apartment in Tel Aviv to talk to him about the theme of our episode today, People of the Book, his wife Shira and their eight-year-old son Lev were in the kitchen making a cake. The mixer was mixing, the blender was blending, and the spatula was constantly clanking against the bowl as Lev was trying to sneak in some licks. You know, basically the perfect ingredients for radio recording. We wanted to talk to Edgar not only because he's one of Israel's leading authors, the voice of our generation, people often say, but also because he has this reputation of being the first Israeli author to fully disengage from the Bible, to write in an utterly secular Israeli style, whatever that means. Anyway, back to the ruckus. Edgar suggested that we go into Lev's room, which we did, but there too there was this constant hum, like a motor running or something. Turns out it was the oxygen pump in Lev's fish tank. We asked if we could turn it off for a few minutes, but Lev looked kind of worried. He explained that Goldie, the goldfish, was five years old, which apparently is four years beyond the average goldfish life expectancy, and he needs all the oxygen he can get. So, there we were, with probably the oldest goldfish in Tel Aviv looking on, discussing how it is that a really old book became the tagline of the Jews. What does that even mean, to be the people of the book? Well, you know, I think that many people think that, you know, being the people of the book means that we, we read lots of books. <laughs> but, you know, but it refers only to, to one book. And I think that there is something about the Bible, because it is a text and it is uh, very abstract in its nature and it talks about an abstract God, then we talk about the book because we cannot talk about the cross, you know, or we cannot talk about something that is very, very concrete. So we say, you know, the book, the book, you know. <laughs> Do you think that there's something a little bit self-congratulatory about us calling ourselves the people of the book? Like, you know, I think being the people of the book is probably a bit better than like being the people of the Game Boy or people of the Sony PlayStation or something like that, right? So, so do you think we're actually trying to say like, ah, you know, we're, we're kind of serious. We're the people of the book. I think that we became the people of the book just for lack of any other object to use. I'm, I'm saying branding Jews as the people of the book, you know, people from Islam can, can come and say, we're also the people of the book. We just have a different book, you know, it's called Quran, but we're also the people of the book, you know. I can imagine that there were a bunch of copywriters in the room and they said, how about we call ourselves the people who cut the top of their penis off? And, you know, and somebody said, you know, I don't think it's going to work. You know, I don't think it's going to work. Let's go for something, you know, more all of the family kind of thing. Let's go for the people of the book. And, and they went with him and maybe it was a smart decision. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and welcome back to Israel Story, or Sipur Israeli, here on Box Tablet. Each episode, we have a theme and a few stories that relate to it. Thanks to the ingenuity of the Talmud-era Don Drapers, today's theme is not the people who cut off the tops of their penises. Instead, we've got three stories that all revolve around books. And, lest you feel that you already maxed out lately on hearing about the Bible, I can tell you that only one of the stories today is about the book. And even that one, uh, not really. In today's episode, we'll visit this weird, funky Yiddish time capsule. We'll see how stealing a book from a public library can determine who you marry. And finally, we'll end up in Syria, in Aleppo, and meet a secret underground of bookies who are obsessed with what the New York Times called a high holy whodunit. But before all that, back to Edgar. So, Edgar, let's imagine if you were the minister of education or, or the prime minister or, or, you know, a dictator, and you could make all Israelis read one book, what book would you choose? Well, first of all, I like the idea of being a dictator. You know, it's a nice idea. Thank you for sharing it with me, Michi. But I, I think that the, the whole idea about uh, books is that books for me, are very much like human beings. And uh, and reading a book is kind of developing a friendship. So I think that, that kind of trying to impose that everybody will have to befriend the same guy is something that just doesn't make much sense. I think that really what literature uh, has to give to us is this kind of a variety and difference. 
have an anecdote about books. So I, I sometimes have meetings with the troubled youth, and when I come, you know, I have to introduce myself, and I, I say I'm a writer, I write books. And in one of those meetings, there was a guy, and he says to me, so if you write books, you know, then I don't give a fuck about what you say because it's not interesting at all. And I said to him, eh, why? He said, you know, because I don't waste my time reading books. I only do practical stuff. So I do push-ups, you know, I run a lot. I learn how to pick locks. I do all kinds of stuff that can help me. Reading books, you know, some kind of bullshit thing about this guy who lived in Russia a century ago. You know, you just waste your time. And I said to him, you know, actually, I think it's really, really pragmatic. And he, says, he said to me, in what sense? And I said to him, because when you read a book, you really can f- see how other people see reality and not only you. So, so let's say if you read a, a book about a, a girl who falls in love with a guy and you read it carefully, maybe you know what girls are looking for in guys. So maybe you can trick a girl into falling in love with you. So the guy said to me, eh, this is bullshit. And he left the room. And I finished the lecture, and after the lecture, I had to go to the restroom, so I went to the restroom, and on my way out, I saw this guy kind of checking out a book, and he was checking <laughs> it out like, you know, you're, like you're petting an unfriendly dog, but I saw like for the first time he was looking, at it, and there was this kind of sense of triumph, because I actually think that, you know, that uh, the same way we go to the gym, then when we read a book, we exercise the muscle of empathy, which is a muscle that we usually in everyday life... We do our best not to put into stress. You know, when we see a homeless guy in the street, we can give him a buck or not give him a buck. But the last thing we want to do is to actually try and feel how the world feels, you know, through his eyes. So this is really this kind of safe area where we can really observe emotions and see how the world looks from another way. And it's safe because the moment that we put the book down, you know, we will be back in our lives. Edgar Keret. His latest project, Tel Aviv Noir, is a collection of short stories he edited along with Asaf Gavron by Israeli authors you haven't heard of yet. It's out in English this month. All right, let's begin. Act one, Jung Yiddish. You know, for years now we've been hearing this story about the revival of Yiddish, about it kind of finding this cool, almost hipster new life outside of it being just the lingua franca of the Hasidic world. This is not that story. In America, sure, you've got Yiddish summer camps, Yiddish literature departments, Yiddish festivals, Yiddish punk bands, Yiddish podcasts, best-selling Yiddish phrase books, even Yiddish organic farms. In Israel, the situation is quite different. Step out of Bnei Brak or Masharim, and you're basically as likely to hear Yiddish as you are to hear, uh, I don't know, Urdu. I mean, everyone knows Oyve Zmir, Groysa Metzia, and a few other phrases their grandparents used to say. But there's almost nothing hip about Yiddish here. Or at least that was the case, till this one rather unusual man appeared on the scene. Dana Harman, yep, she's my sister, <laughs> went to meet him in the magical Yiddish center he built in the most unlikely of places. Welcome to Tel Aviv's massive and much maligned central bus station. Even though it's been around for decades, it's still called the new bus station, or the Tachana HaMelkazit HaChadasha. Honestly, it looks anything but. A huge labyrinth of a building, it's located in the heart of Neve Shanan, which is one of Tel Aviv's worst neighborhoods. Hapless commuters shuffle alongside foreign workers, asylum seekers, drug addicts, prostitutes, and homeless. All of them riding up and down the escalators, searching for the Egged Company buses out of here. And then, in a wing that's basically closed, where old signs point to an STD clinic and a now-defunct Israeli-Filipina dating agency... There's a corridor. And then, all of a sudden, without any warning, you reach this side door that leads to another world. It's like going through a rabbit hole. Hemda is a spiffy-looking artist I bumped into here, walking to, well, the same place I was heading. You keep going through this real-life maze, and all of a sudden, it opens up into this huge loft, and it's full of Yiddish books. They say there are 50,000, I don't know, it, it's hard to count, 
old typewriters, all kinds of musical instruments that our grandparents played, a huge wall of books. The king of this surreal kingdom is one Belgian-born Orthodox yeshiva boy turned Bohemian-Israeli. Mendy Kahan. He's a 48-year-old bachelor with bushy eyebrows, sparkly blue eyes, and a receding mane of gray hair. When I walked in, he was sitting at his desk, among a total clutter of papers and unpaid bills, chain-smoking rolled cigarettes. He looks for his lighter, then he looks for his mobile phone, and then, thinking of an even better plan, he starts looking for his glasses. <laughs> Until finally he gives up, pours us some mint tea from an old tin kettle. He sways ever so slightly back and forth as he chats. Maybe it's a leftover from his old yeshiva days. Mendy grew up in Antwerp, where at home he spoke Yiddish, French, Dutch, and Hebrew. It was, he says, a traditional but also a cosmopolitan upbringing. We also went to the synagogue and we also saw movies. At home, I had books of uh, Sartre and Camus of my mother, and we also had a good Jewish library with the Talmud, the Mishnah, the, the Marshall, the all kinds of uh, exegesis. In 1980, right after graduating high school, Mendy came to study in a yeshiva in Israel. But then he began straying from his orthodox path, enrolling in secular courses at Jerusalem's Hebrew University. From quite early on, I felt that I wanted to get out of the religious world, which felt to me like the, the small shtetl. Everyone knew each other. I wanted to be in the universal world. And to come here in Israel was, for me, an encounter with, with freedom, with sunshine, with open skies. On a whim, he decided to tack a Yiddish literature class onto his course load, just really for old time's sake. It was funny, like, here I come and I want to get get away from the alte Sachen, uh, as they say. And then I see that really all, all, all this, it's not really alte Sachen. This is like the, the, the Größe Metzier, the, the Geschäft, you know. He'd hoped to get away from all that old stuff or alte Sachen. It seemed that, though, on second look, Mendy found it exciting and relevant. A real Metzier, a Geschäft, or a deal, a hidden find. But at the same time, sitting in that classroom, looking around at the tiny cohort of classmates, he realized he was kind of alone in thinking that. Something in Israel seemed amiss, at least Yiddish-wise. It was really, like we were in the, in the department, we were three or four students, like really a small department. And, and the feeling was that it's dying, and here we are studying at the university to keep the memory going. Uh, but actually, it's a dying thing. And, and I said to myself, hmm, here we are. In Israel, in our home country, finally. And where is all this? Like, where, where, how come there's no even a, a, a memory of it? And I understood that these are my roots and I have to do something with it. Then I started to collect uh, Yiddish books. Mendy started collecting in 1996, putting out word that he would take care of any Yiddish book dropped off at his place in Jerusalem. Soon, he was overwhelmed by calls and then by visits. These were typically young Israelis who couldn't speak Yiddish, but who, following the death of an older relative, didn't know what to do with the books left behind. Many of them told him they felt it would be disrespectful to throw out their grandparents' or their parents' libraries, but they didn't really want them there on their new IKEA shelves either. Mendy's project gave him a much better, guilt-free option. The piles in his living room, they grew and grew and grew. I didn't know what I was going into. Like, I thought I would collect a few hundreds, thousands of books. I would have a nice library and I will, uh, I will have good reading material. Before World War II, there were about 15 million people in Eastern Europe who spoke, read, and lived Yiddish. That world, of course, was all but lost and destroyed in the Holocaust. The resurgence of interest in Yiddish language and literature that's been taking place over the last decade or two in the U.S. has been slow, ironically, to catch on here. Yes, in Israel today, there are about 500 high school students sitting for the Yiddish matriculation exams. There are more universities and colleges offering Yiddish literature courses. And the Yiddish theater, which was founded in 1987, is gaining a slightly broader audience. But still, when Mendy looked around and sized up the situation, this is 20 years ago, Yiddish was, let's face it, basically dead. It never really stood a chance. In pre-state Palestine, and then later in newborn Israel, Yiddish was seen by many as a competition to the newly revived Hebrew. It wasn't simply neglected. It was actually derided. When you talk Yiddish, you're attached to the diaspora. Avshalom Kor is Israel's go-to authority on the Hebrew language. He offers, as an example, the attitude of Eliezer ben Yehuda, the man considered to be the father of modern Hebrew. He was ready to talk to everybody, 
in every language in the world. He knew many languages, but never Yiddish, because Yiddish is a concept that you do not belong to the land of Israel. You do not belong to the language of the Bible. That is the anthem of the Hebrew Language Brigade. It's a group completely devoted to safeguarding Hebrew from foreign intruders, like Yiddish. Speak Hebrew, Jew, go the lyrics, because that's the language of your land and people. In the 1930s and 40s, in an era that celebrated the figure of the Sabra, that's that strong, virile, tanned Israeli toiling away on the lands of the kibbutz, Yiddish was losing that battle big time. Yiddish movies were boycotted, kiosks selling Yiddish papers were attacked, and local Yiddish musicians were banned from performing. All those Yiddish books saved from Eastern Europe and lovingly schlepped to the new land of the Jews, they lay yellowing on dusty shelves. In a country that was trying to forget the Holocaust, they represented something weak, even shameful. Mendy remembers one woman, a Holocaust survivor in her 80s, who asked him to come get her books. She told him that when she came to Israel from Vilna after the war, she met Israeli children who would cover their ears when she spoke to them in Yiddish. Like they had this already inborn reaction to Yiddish, and this hurt her so much. Uh, said, how, how did they know to, to close their ears? Like little children, innocent little children, how did they know this? To this old lady and many others, Mendy was nothing less than the last hope of preserving a legacy, otherwise sure to be lost. So, so I felt like a calling. Soon, Mendy's little Jerusalem apartment was overflowing with donated books. So he decided to make it all official and call it a library, a cultural center even, where those books could live on. He called it Jung Yiddish. Jung Yiddish, Jung means young in Yiddish. So it's to relate to the young energy, to the rejuvenating energy of Yiddish. Like if you have Ying and Yang, so you also should have Jung. At the beginning, this was, it was really like hush-hush. People told it to each other from word of mouth. People came from Bnei Barak, cantors, uh, yeshiva students, or, or people who like uh, literature, who know to sing. A few years later, a bit of spilkes, as they say, Mendy decided to relocate to Tel Aviv. At first, he set up shop temporarily in the basement of an office building. But then when that space was taken over by a kindergarten, he found himself, together with, oh, about 20,000 books and counting, evicted and out on the street. Desperate, he followed a tip from Friends of Friends, which led him to this behemoth bus station. And there, as luck would have it, the municipality was offering cheap rental space to encourage artists to move in. I saw this place. It was like a deserted parking lot with birds flying around and no windows and nothing, no electricity. I had like seven tons of Yiddish books that I needed to find a house for. And so I said, that's it. That's the place. He swept the floor, he fixed the windows, he brought in some second-hand Persian rugs, and he moved in with his hoard of Yiddish treasure. If you go to Mendy's kingdom today, you'll stumble upon roughly 40,000 books. More than that. They're lined up on the shelves, they're propped up against the walls, and they're piled high on the ground. It's amazing. He's got everything. He has health magazines from Warsaw circa 1924. He has joke books out of 1930s Vilnius and beautifully illustrated children books from New York in the 1940s all in Yiddish. One thing's for sure, you won't be alone. The last time we visited, besides Mendy and some volunteers cataloging books, we found a group of young chassids filming Cantor Rosenfeld's next music video. And there, over in the other corner, were some Russian immigrants reading de Tunkerler on the sofas. Sometimes you'll find hipsters having a smoke here with Mendy, and sometimes just random strangers like Shimon Buzinski, who wander in in search of a specific book. We were looking for a book for my father-in-law. A Yiddish book by Sholem Aleichem that's called Why do the Jews need a state? We got lost and we were walking around the central bus station forever, going up and down like, like two hours, 
and nothing. And, and, and then we reached this corner here on the fifth floor, and we heard some, some music playing. We just stood there listening for maybe like 15 minutes. When he was done, we went up to him and said that we really loved the music and, and asked him if by any chance he had that Shulam Aleichem book. And within a second, he just went up to this wall of thousands and thousands of books and pulled one out, the, the book we wanted, and, and gave it to us. Shimon's been back many times since then, and he and Mendy have become sort of friends, Yiddish pals, I guess. There are a lot of those sort of friendships forged here. Yiddish has become like a really a fringe culture. It does not have a home doesn't have a nation, does not have an establishment. So many groups who also feel that they're not part of the establishment, they must, they're at the fringes of society, they connect with Yiddish. So be it lesbians or homosexuals or, or people who don't feel at home with this uh, Hebrew militarism, uh, they find Yiddish a more peaceful um, and a more lenient culture to connect to. Several times a month, Yiddish fans of all kinds gather here for themed evenings, everything from cabarets to Holocaust memorials. At the entrance, there's usually a buffet of herring and kugel. People schmooze, sit down in the old beaten-up armchairs, sip vodka. On this evening, an old violinist with wavy white hair is giving an impromptu performance in the corner. Soon, one of the younger guys, with a waxed Turkish-style mustache and thick-rimmed glasses, picks up an accordion and joins in. And then, Mendy gets up on the small stage. It's filled with walls and walls of books behind him and around him. The always appreciative crowd is swaying and humming along, and he begins to croon. He invites his keyboard player, a small lady in her 70s, to center stage. She takes the microphone, flashes a flirtatious smile, pushes back her gray hair, strikes a pose, and channels Edith Piaf. In Yiddish, of course. The crowd, to use the Yiddish term my mom taught me, quells. At the end of the evening, we sit around near the overside cushions depicting the greats of Yiddish literature, Mendele Mocher Sfarim, Shalom Aleichem, and Yud Lamed Peretz. And we talk. Mendy pours out the mashke, the vodka, for a bissel l'chaim, he says and he rolls himself another cigarette. The buses rumble overhead, shaking the entire room, and a muffled announcement in Hebrew informs us that the 394 is leaving for a lot. And then it's quiet for a moment, allowing my thoughts to wander. What would all the great Yiddish writers and thinkers make of this new central bus station home of theirs? Well, I don't know if they will dance from joy because on the one hand like they come from there were millions of readers around them and and here these books are a little bit hmm, left aside a little bit hurt but there's so many intelligent bright things and so much work in these books so much thoughts if i would have some money I would make panels so that you can see the writers their biographies and then you could see the richness of all this but for the moment this is the best uh, we could do so that's it but I believe it will grow it will Dana Harmon. Dana is a journalist who has written from all over the world. For the past few years, she's on staff at Aaretz, where she also writes a column of love stories. And speaking of which, about half an hour southeast of Beersheva, basically in the middle of nowhere, there's a small town, 
דימונה. Around the world, it's best known for what Israel denies is there, our national nuclear plant. I hope I don't get into trouble for saying that. And honestly, that's more or less what it is for most Israelis, too. A quick pit stop on the way to Elat. You get out of the car, you go to the bathroom, crack a lame joke about radiation, and keep on driving into the desert. Dimona was originally built in the 50s as what was then known as an Ayarat Pituach, a dumping ground for waves of immigrants from North Africa. It's a very well-known saga, but the leaders of Mapai, the ruling labor party, essentially tricked these new immigrants into believing that they were being housed in a central location with lush surroundings, that it was a 10-minute bus ride from Haifa and the beach. But reality was bleak. Poverty, unemployment, crazy heat, and nothing but sand and sand and sand. Almost all the people still around from that generation are super bitter. Whoever could, left. But for Chaya Gilboa, a 31-year-old with a huge mane of flaming red curls, Dimona is something completely different. It's where she first encountered the book which, she believed, would change her life. That book, by the way, is called Sefer Agasima Tzeubim, The Book of the Yellow Pears. And it's by a relatively forgotten author, Pinchas Sadeh. Act 2, the most beautiful book ever written. Dana Rutenberg reads this story. It all began in Dimona, which is basically the last place I thought anything could ever start. I was in the middle of my second year as a Talmud major at Ben Gurion University in Be'er Sheva, and I'd fallen head over heels for this guy, a percussionist, from Dimona. I was so desperate for his attention that I began roaming around kind of aimlessly in his sleepy town, hoping to bump into him. But just in case that happened, I needed a good excuse. In the end, I found the perfect one. A local oud teacher agreed to give me some lessons on an instrument that I had never before touched and frankly had no real desire to master. So there I was in Dimona twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, making sure I arrived early enough to wander the streets, hoping to meet my guy. On one particularly sweltering mid-July Thursday, I ducked into the municipal library for some shade. The elderly librarian looked up and gave me a suspicious glare as she slowly dragged a cart full of books behind her. A few kids sat on puffy pillows in the corner and listened quietly as a volunteer read to them from Edmondo de Amici's heart. I picked up a random book that was laying around on one of the tables. Pinchas Sadez Sefer HaGasim HaTzubim, The Book of the Yellow Pears. I vaguely recall the author's name. In high school, if I remembered correctly, we were forced to read another one of his books, Life as a Parable, for our final matriculation exam. After flipping through its pages for a few minutes, I made sure the librarian wasn't looking, slipped the book into my bag, and walked out of the library. When I think back on it today, I actually have no idea why I stole that book instead of just borrowing it. I guess I was so nervous about the guy that I didn't want to leave any traces of ever having been there. A week later, I finally mustered enough courage and called my guy. We sort of dated for a few weeks till he decided I wasn't his type, and that was that. The library, the unbearable heat, and my oud teacher all stayed in Dimona while I returned to my Talmud books and student life in Be'er Sheva. A year passed, and Yom Kippur came around. I was home in Jerusalem, but didn't want to spend the holiday in the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood where I had grown up and where my family still lived. For once, I wanted an uplifting spiritual alternative, one that wasn't comprised of long hours staring at the pages of the prayer book in the crowded ladies' section of the local synagogue. So I asked a friend if he would spend a quiet day with me at a small natural spring in the hills of Jerusalem. When he hung from downstairs, I quickly threw some clothes into a bag, surveyed the bookshelf, and without much thought, grabbed a smallish book with that cheap plastic cover old libraries use, and ran for the door. Okay, this might be a good time for a confession. I like to exaggerate and romanticize. A lot, actually. But this, I promise you, is not one of those times. Here's the plain truth. Pinchas Sadeh's Book of the Yellow Pears was, hands down, the most beautiful and wild text I'd ever read. 
I reread it many times since, but the impression it made on me that very first time while I was dangling my feet in the cold water of the spring in Evan Sapir on Yom Kippur before the last year of my university will never really fade. His sad short stories wormed their way into my heart and tinkered with my breath. It's such a cliche, but I couldn't put it down for a second. When I reached that last page, I suddenly had this rare moment of total clarity. An epiphany, I guess. My future love, my life partner, the one I was always looking for, would somehow be connected to this book. I turned to the inside back cover and pulled out the borrowing card. That little index card in which stern-looking librarians used to write down the name, address, and telephone number of the borrowers. You know, in the era before books started being checked out like items in the supermarket. There were five names, three men and two women. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but at that moment, as the sun was setting and Yom Kippur was ending, I was just certain that my Bashert, the father of my future children, was on that list. That night, I broke the fast with an old friend. I told him about my plan to call each of the three men on the cart and insist that they meet me. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, he said. If someone called me with that story, I'd immediately call the police and tell them an insane woman had stolen a book from the Dimona Public Library and was now stalking me. But I didn't care. I knew that my romantic fate was inscribed on the library card of the most beautiful book that had ever been written. Years later, I still try to understand what exactly made me impose my wild fantasy on someone I hadn't even met. As if love wasn't something that happened naturally between two people, but instead required some third external entity to form the bond. I waited for two days before calling the first guy on the list, Udi. Doing my very best to sound extra nice, extra sane, I asked for a minute of his time. I then told him about the book and how I felt there was some special bond between all those who read it. Udi sounded kind of stunned by the whole thing and was a bit too quick to point out that he had no recollection of borrowing the book from the Dimona library or for that matter of ever reading it. After a few seconds of what was a very awkward silence, he suddenly remembered. A few years ago he told me he had taken it out for a friend who needed it for a seminar paper he was writing. This disappointing answer caught me off guard. I had liked Udi's voice from the moment he had picked up the phone. Do you want his number? Udi asked. I debated whether this was within the rules of my fantasy. Sure, it was once removed connection, but still it felt kosher. I hesitated for a second and said yes. With a friend it was much easier. He was from Belsheva, remembered the book well and was happy to meet up. But something in the conversation... Maybe it was his tone or cadence seemed a bit off. Still, I was on a mission and I wasn't going to let any vague feelings stop me. We met at a bar not far from the university. My heart was racing when we shook hands. I looked up at him melodramatically and explained the whole thing in one breath. He seemed completely bewildered, trying to grasp the fast stream of words spilling out of my mouth. When I finally stopped to inhale, he smiled. I get it, he said. It's such a charming story and you seem so sweet, but I gotta tell you that I don't exactly fit the role you've cut out for me. I live with my boyfriend, you see, so... It took me a few moments to recover. I let him pay for my beer and went home to strike his name off the list. But honestly, my inner screenwriter was secretly pleased. Every good tale needs a few twists and this I convinced myself was just a mandatory first plot point. I took a deep breath, picked up the phone and dialed potential lover number two, Nathan. I had to leave him several voice messages before he finally called me back. After quietly listening to me for a while, he began interrogating me. Who was I? What had I been doing in Dimona? Was I interested in meeting him for a research project? He adamantly refused to meet in Belsheva or really anywhere outside of Dimona, so I went to meet him. In the car on the way there, I thought to myself that I love the name Nathan. Sure, the immediate association is with Sharansky, the famous cap-wearing refusenik-turned-hawkish politician. But still, the name has such a crisp and warm sound to it. 
It's a lover's name. A companion. Someone to grow old with. My ride dropped me off at the entrance to town, and I walked towards its small, dusty center. Nathan recognized me at once, based on the description I had given him on the phone. I guess not that many curly redheads show up looking lost in central Dimona. He waved with a friendly hello. He was sitting on a plastic chair outside a kiosk, balancing a cup of black coffee on his knee. He had brown eyes, thick black hair, and one dimple on his left cheek. Sweet-looking, but just about my father's age. As I waited for the bus back to Beersheva, I started to wonder about this whole escapade. Was I forging ahead out of a true conviction that my beloved was on that old library card? Or had I just fallen in love with my story, with the romanticism of the search? Before I could answer that question definitively, there was one last name on the card. My final shot. God, I looked up and pleaded, be kind. I didn't want to believe that I had been wrong, that the library card wasn't my secret map to love. Shalom was the third on the list. It took me a few days to get through to him because the last two digits of his phone number on the card were smudged. I patiently tried every possible combination until I reached him. Maybe it was my perseverance or just luck, but Shalom got me immediately. Everything seemed to fit. I checked this time. He was my age, straight, had a soft voice and remembered the book. His dad lived in Dimona, but he was now studying social work at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I got on the 470 bus with quite a bit of excitement. I brought the book with me, and he got a kick out of that. He had these big, comforting eyes and didn't think I was crazy at all. I liked him. Then he told me that he actually didn't enjoy the book at all and had borrowed it by mistake thinking it was a different Pinchasadeh novel. Was this enough to call the whole thing off? To declare the voyage for my literary soulmate an utter failure? After all, I had set out believing that whoever loved this book as much as I had would also have to love me, that it was enough for two strangers to share a love for a third thing in order to bind them together forever. So now what? Shalom didn't care for the book, but he liked the story I had created around the book. At least that's what he told me. He walked me to the station to catch the bus back to Beersheva. But before we parted, he touched my cheeks so naturally that my heart kind of quivered. So I didn't get on that first bus that came, or the second. I stayed in Jerusalem that night and dove headfirst into an intense love affair. As much as I would like to stop right here, I can't. The story has a different ending. After two months, Shalom broke up with me. Honestly, I can't really blame him. I don't even know how he stuck around that long. When he ended it, he told me that he felt like I was more enchanted by the idea of who he could be than who he really was. I knew he was right. I mean, nothing gave me more satisfaction than knowing that my crazy odyssey had panned out, than telling people how we met, and seeing the jealous faces as we unfolded the tale of our improbable romance. But if I'm being honest with myself, there wasn't much more than that. We went our separate ways, and uh, I haven't seen him since. And the stolen copy of the Book of the Yellow Pears? I hid it behind a row of cookbooks on my shelf and swore never to read it again. That didn't last. I've returned to it since, dozens of times, in search of secret clues hiding behind Sadez's words, hoping that somehow they'll point me towards my guy, who, like me, understands. There's one book, an ancient one, more than a thousand years old, which stands at the center of one of the most fascinating mysteries in Jewish history. Over the centuries, this book was concealed, venerated, pillaged, salvaged, smuggled, made to disappear, and miraculously appear once more. That book is the Aleppo Codex. 
Today, part of it is displayed as a national treasure in Jerusalem, and part of it is a kind of holy grail sought worldwide by professors, rabbis, spies, and collectors. Together, these people, enthralled by the magic of this codex and its story, make up a sort of underground society. For them, this book is much more than just a book. Mati Friedman encountered them completely by chance. It was the summer of 2008. I was a reporter here in Jerusalem, and I was kept busy covering the endless routine of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I was desperate to write about something else, about anything else. One day I was at the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem at Israel's National Museum, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls are kept. Uh, everyone knows the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're celebrities. They're the, the Beyonce of ancient Hebrew manuscripts. <laughs> the Scrolls Gallery was full of tourists who were looking at these 2,000-year-old fragments of, of parchment. A flight of stairs led down from that gallery into a dark room. It was essentially a basement, and it was empty. And there I encountered another book. And from the labels, I understood that this was the singular perfect copy of the Hebrew Bible, probably Judaism's most important manuscript, and it was one of the most important and valuable books on earth, but I had never heard of it. That gap between its importance and its anonymity seemed to me to be worth exploring. Adolfo Reutemann is the museum curator in charge of the Codex. The magic of the Aleppo Codex is that this manuscript is the most significant traditional version of the Hebrew Bible. you, you know, it's a kind of metaphor of the presence of God on earth. It's the word of God, and the book itself was revered by Jews for centuries, seeing this book as the real presence of God. So what does being the perfect version of the Hebrew Bible even mean? Well, take a religious institution like the Catholic Church, for example. The Church is held together by a central office, which is called the Vatican, and it's in Rome. And it sets doctrine and appoints clergy, and it runs the Church. But Judaism never had anything like that. And after the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and the beginning of the exile, there was, there was very little holding these diaspora communities together. For a people, dispersion had always meant extinction. And if the Jews were going to be an exception, and they very much wanted to be an exception, they needed a mechanism that would allow them to somehow stay one people, even though they were now speaking different languages, and they were answering to different kings. And the mechanism needed to be portable because they were now moving around the world. And what they came up with was the idea that a people could be held together by words. They would have a book that they would all read. This book is the collection of texts that we know as the Hebrew Bible. But the mechanism only works if they're all reading exactly the same book because any variations would quickly lead to fragmentation, to religious schism. So you need an agreed-upon master copy, a kind of atomic clock of Judaism, and that is the Aleppo Codex, the authoritative version of the Bible. The Codex was written around 930 AD on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. After that, it was moved to Jerusalem, seized by the soldiers of the First Crusade, and then ransomed by the Jews of Cairo. In Cairo, it was actually the personal Bible used by the great Jewish philosopher and physician Moses Maimonides. A few generations later, it traveled from Cairo north to Aleppo, a trading center in Syria, where it became the treasured possession of the city's Jewish community. It remained there, hidden in the great synagogue, in a safe with two locks, for 600 years. Rina Sutton, who lives in Israel and is now in her 80s, still remembers the mystique around the Codex. During the holidays, or on special occasions like bar mitzvahs, they would take the Codex out of its garado and parade it among the congregants, and everyone lined up to kiss it because it had power. If a woman was trying to get pregnant, she'd get close and touch it. Anyone with a special request would come near. The Jews of Aleppo came to believe that the book protected their community. It was their talisman. Here's Rina's husband, Rafi, also from Aleppo. 
Many legends and beliefs got tied up with the book. If it were ever moved, if it ever left Aleppo, a horrible plague would strike the community. Leprosy, or even worse, total destruction, all kinds of dark things. So this all sounds kind of dramatic, but it's pretty close to what ended up happening. Today, there are no Jews left in Aleppo. It's the largest city in Syria, a major battlefield between Assad's government and the rebel forces. And it makes you wonder what would have happened if the Codex were still there. Books, after all, don't fare well in wars. Egypt? No. Soviet Union? Yes. United Kingdom? Abstain. The United States? Yes. On November 29, 1947, the United Nations voted on the partition of the British Mandate in Palestine into two states, one for the Arabs and one for the Jews. The next day, riots erupted in Aleppo. A mob burned Jewish homes and businesses, and also the Great Synagogue, where the Codex was kept. The book disappeared. And most people thought that it was lost for good. But ten years later, Mati explains, it resurfaced in mysterious circumstances, this time in Jerusalem, in the new state of Israel. It turned out that the Codex had actually survived. It had been hidden first by a Christian merchant and then by a Jewish merchant in the old Aleppo Bazaar, before it was smuggled out of Syria by a Jewish family who hid it in their washing machine. It, it reached Turkey, and then it traveled by sea to Haifa, which is an Israeli port, and from there to Jerusalem in early 1958. It ended up in an important academic institute called the Ben Svi Institute, which was founded by Israel's second president, Yitzhak Ben Svi, who was also a scholar and, I guess you could say, an early member of the Aleppo Codex underground. He had been obsessed with the book since the 1930s, and he had done everything in his power to bring it to Jerusalem, including a failed attempt a few years earlier to use the Mossad to smuggle it out of Syria. Now, in 1958, he finally got his wish. He had the book. When the Codex arrived in Jerusalem, two questions arose. One was, who owned Judaism's greatest book? Was it the community that had cherished it and cared for it for 600 years? Or was it the new state of Israel? And that question became the subject of a fascinating legal battle that was fought in a court in Jerusalem over four years. But the second question is the one that preoccupies the Aleppo Codex underground to this day. When the book was written, more than a thousand years earlier, it had about 500 pages. But when it turned up in Jerusalem, it had only 294 pages. So about 40% was missing. And the pages that were gone weren't just any pages. They included the Torah, the five books of Moses, which is the most important part of any Hebrew Bible manuscript. And there were other books missing as well, like Daniel, Esther, and a few others. So what did people think had happened? Well, the accepted belief was that the pages had been lost in the fire in the Great Synagogue in 1947. The physical appearance of the Codex seemed to support that idea because on the bottom outer corner of each page, there is a purplish discoloration that looks like a burn mark. So for years, people just assumed that that was what happened, and it was convenient because if the pages had been burned, you didn't have to look for them. But in 1986, the book was sent for restoration and a manuscript expert took a close look at these burn marks and he sent samples to a microbiology lab. And when the slides came back, the expert told me he literally jumped out of his chair because the slides showed clearly that the, that the purple marks weren't burn marks. They were fungus. And in fact, there was no evidence at all that the codex had ever been damaged by fire. If they hadn't been destroyed in a fire, where were the missing pages? They had immense value to collectors, to Aleppo exiles, and to scholars. And because there are no known copies or photographs of the Codex, the absence of the pages means that the original perfect text of the Bible can't be recreated. In the 1980s, two fragments surfaced, a page from the Book of Chronicles and a fragment from Exodus with a few passages describing the plague of frogs which God sent to afflict Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Both fragments were found in, of all places, Brooklyn, New York, where they were held by Aleppo Jews who had immigrated to the U.S. and who believed that the pages of the Codex had the power to protect them against the evil eye. 
At first, researchers were really excited. They hoped that the discovery of these pages would lead to the rest of the missing pieces. But they never did. More than 200 pages remain missing. Since then, nothing else has ever turned up. The mystery continues. And that is where the Aleppo Codex Underground comes in. Early in my research, I found myself sitting in the living room of an 80-year-old ex-Mossad agent named Rafi Sutton. He was born in Aleppo and escaped to Israel as a teenager. He knew I was looking for information about the Aleppo Codex, and I knew that he had been investigating the story for years. So he puts an enormous file folder on his coffee table, and then he looks at me. (laughs) I was thrilled because for a reporter, a folder full of yellowing documents is like a juicy hamburger in front of a starving man. But it (laughs) soon became clear to me that he had no intention of actually letting me see what was inside the folder. Uh, This was a guy whose profession was trading in information and secrets. He spent time abroad undercover. He had run agents in the Jordanian sector of Jerusalem in the 50s. And spies like that don't just give information away. And I think that was my first introduction to the underground. Another key figure is a guy named Ezra Kassin, who's in his 40s. He did his military service as a young man as a detective in the military police and later ran a center for the study of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. And he can describe the great synagogue of Aleppo in meticulous detail. I turn left, go down a flight of stairs, and, and now I'm standing in front of the main gate of the synagogue. And I, I, I can already feel the sanctity, a, a sense of awe completely engulfing me. There's like an inner trembling and excitement, a sense that I'm in the midst of heightened spiritual ecstasy. I I push the really heavy, huge wooden doors, the hinges creak, the door opens, and I enter. Now, I, I find myself walking down a long corridor, leading to a small grotto where the Holy Codex is kept. It's the object of our prayers, the ancient and holy treasure of our community. What's amazing is that Ezra is describing a place that he has never seen. He was born in Israel, years after the Codex arrived from Syria. His home is packed with binders of material on the Codex that he's collected. And his wife, who I also got to know over the years that I worked on this book, she knows that she has to share her home with Ezra's other true love. (laughs) Ezra probably has more information on the Codex than anyone else alive. Um, But as was the case with Rafi, the first time I met him, I got nowhere. He would say things like, you know, Mate, one wrong word to someone in this story and 10 other doors will slam shut. And then he would kind of look at me with a sly grin and he wouldn't say anything more. So was this frustrating to you? It was, but it also tipped me off to the existence of a good story that was being concealed. And after a few months of persistence, the doors cracked open. Slowly, Mati gained more trust as he began to become a part of the underground himself. He learned that there were significant cracks in the official story. Rafi Sutton, the retired spy, found an elderly rabbi from Aleppo who was by then living in Buenos Aires, and he turned out to be a very reliable witness. The rabbi told him explicitly on camera that he had seen the manuscript whole in 1952. That's five years after the riot in Aleppo and the fire in the synagogue, which is when the pieces were supposed to have gone missing. But the rabbi said, no, that was not what happened at all. What that meant was that the pages went missing sometime after the rabbi saw them, and there weren't that many options. Either when the book was being guarded and hiding by the Jews of Aleppo, or in transit through Turkey, or, and this was the most explosive potential conclusion, after it reached Israel and was being held by the scholars of the President's Institute. One of my first questions was, when was the first time someone wrote down which pages were missing? And I thought this would be easy to find out, but of course, like everything with the Codex, it turned out not to be. After spending a lot of time in archives, I realized that no one had noted how much was missing or that the Torah was missing before March 1958, which is a decade after the fire and it's after the Codex arrived in the hands of the president. I also started finding evidence that there were other valuable books missing from the collection at the same institute. The academics who are the custodians of the Codex today and who I at first saw as neutral observers who I could consult with about this very complicated story, they clammed up and 
eventually refused to cooperate or provide me with documents that I requested, even when I filed a request under Israel's Freedom of Information Act. But why, why was that, Mati? <laughs> That'll take a long time to answer. Their uh, refusal, of course, made me more curious. And by this time, I thought of myself as a member of the Aleppo Codex Underground, and I would meet Ezra or Rafi or some of the others, and we would trade secrets and fragments of information. I asked Mati what he thinks it is about the Codex that sparks this kind of obsession. Jews have a long love affair with books. They aren't known as the people of the book for nothing. Texts were the way Jews maintained their identity over centuries in the diaspora. And there has traditionally been a deep regard for words. For example, when a Torah scroll is taken out in a synagogue, the congregation stands up on their feet like you would stand up when a judge enters the courtroom. And the scrolls often are decorated with a silver crown as if they were some sort of royalty. But Mati actually thinks that there's something even deeper going on here. There's a central idea in Jewish mysticism that the world was once whole and that it then shattered into many fragments. The universe is broken and it needs to be put back together and we do this by our good deeds. And the end of the process is is redemption. I love the idea that is taught by many mystical traditions over the centuries and, and millennia that that the journey is actually the point. The journey is as important as the destination. It's, it's not coincidence that Ezra Kassin of the, uh, of the Aleppo Codex Underground is, is also a scholar of Kabbalah, which is the mystic tradition. Because in this story, you have the meeting of these two Jewish preoccupations, the desire to make things whole and the love for the written word. It's an attempt to collect missing pieces, the pieces of a book, and I think that the idea here, consciously or not, is that if we put the Aleppo Codex back together, we'll actually be restoring something much, much greater. This story originally aired on public radios to the best of our knowledge. Mati's phenomenal book about the mystery of the Aleppo Codex won the 2014 Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature. He's now also a contributing writer for Tablet Magazine. And that's it. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love any help in spreading the word. So don't forget to like us and share the episode on Facebook, where you can find us under the name Israel Story. Follow us on Twitter at at Israel Story, and go to tabletmag.com, where you can find all the previous English episodes on Vox Tablet. And, of course, if you speak Hebrew, please tune in to our Hebrew episodes. We're currently in the middle of our second season on Galei Tzal, but you can hear everything from the very beginning on our site, israelstory.org, or on SoundCloud. Just search for Israel Story. And, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. So post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at israelstory.org. And we're going to end this episode with an Israel moment. Of course, not everyone digs this whole people-of-the-book thing. Many prefer, even now in October, to head to the beach for what they, and many Israelis actually, regard as the real national pastime, matkot. Sort of a beach tennis with these round wooden paddles. Here's a moment from this last summer's national matkot championship in Netanya. Just reminding you that we want to hear your Israel moments. So if you have a piece of tape from Israel that you really love, send it to us. Again, it's contact at israelstory.org and we'll air our favorite submissions. For help on today's episode, thanks to Ethan Pransky, Jeremy Schreier, Ravit Sheffer, Julie Dannen, Thomas Grana, Daniel Estrin, Nava Winkler, Norman Gilliland, Paul Ruest, Mitra Kaboli, Tiffany Roberts, Lev Keret, who generously volunteered his room, and of course, to Goldie, the geriatric goldfish. As always, to Charles Monroe Kane, Kirill Owen, Steve Paulson, Anne Strangchamps, and all the team at TT Book. 
Our executive producer is Julie Subrin, and a huge thanks to the rest of the gang at Tablet. I'm Mishi Harman, and Israel Story is produced with Yochai Meital, Roy Gilron, and Shai Satran. Join us next episode, we hope, and meanwhile, yalla bye. <laughs> מצנבים ועיתון להמתנה, קולנוע שמקרין סרטים של זימה, וכובע של פרסים רקמה. הייתי יורד בתחנה הישנה, והיא הייתה לי מדינה אחרת. Thank <laughs> you.